3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands and waters of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang peoples of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners and custodians of the land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be listening to this broadcast. We recognise the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, Wednesday Breakfast listeners. Thank you for tuning in with us this morning. It's a a wet Wednesday morning. So I hope uh, you're taking it slowly if you're out on the roads or uh, stepping off a tram. This morning uh, I'll be your host and uh, I'll be joined by Sonera very shortly. And we have a busy show today and we'll be touching on some delicate subjects because we are in the midst of 16 days of activism and today is also the day of solidarity uh, with Palestinians. So we'll be bringing some stories relating to to both those uh, commemorative periods and as well as some other stories as well. So heading up the show will be a story from Namibia in southwest Africa. And as part of the 16 Days of Activism and the International Day for Elimination of Violence Against Women that was celebrated last Friday, we listened to one woman's account of the experience of Indigenous Herero and Nama peoples in present-day Namibia. And that will be followed by a discussion with Professor Michael Buxton, who is an expert from RMIT on urban planning. And he's going to be giving us a bit of a rundown on the latest on the planning aspects of the state government's suite of housing uh, policy changes that they introduced late September, mid-September, just before Daniel Andrews uh, resigned. It was his last big reform announcement and uh, we've had quite a lot of coverage about the impact on public housing on the breakfast program Uh, but today we're going to unpack the fast track planning reform and see whether uh, as Mr Andrews says that fast decisions are really good decisions so we'll be hearing from Professor Buxton on that And then closer to 8 o'clock, at about 10 to 8, Sonera will be reporting on the latest um, from universities in relation to sexual assault and sexual harassment. So that will be coming up at about 10 to 8. And then finally, at 10 past 8, we'll be hearing from a teacher 
who is involved with the Teachers Week of Action for Palestine, which is planned for this week. Uh, and the teachers received a government directive a couple of days ago calling for them not to participate in this action. So we'll be finding out more about that. Uh, that'll be coming up at about 10 past eight. Talk Back with Attitude is having a picnic with principles. And that's all you'll get if you don't bring a plate. 12 noon on Thursday, the 14th of December, Parliament Gardens, corner of Spring and Lonsdale Streets in the city. I can't believe this. Pasquale is in bloody Sydney and he's telling us there's a picnic and MTL's talking about principles. Just bring food and drink, okay? Food and drink. Stuff the principles. Stuff Celebrate them. getting through another year. Come to our picnic with platitudes by Talk Back with Attitude. And if you don't bring food to share and something to drink, all you'll get is attitude. Save the date, 12 noon, Thursday the 14th of December at Parliament Gardens in the corner of Spring and Lonsdale Streets. Pasquale, you're not here. We've removed you from the 3CR Talk Back with Attitude records. Come along to a picnic, picnic in, in the, the park. park with the Talk Back team. We'll see you on the 14th. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast and I'm your host, Claudia. And headlines this morning in Australian news, a new framework for monitoring and reporting on the health and well-being of young Australians is being launched today by Vic Health, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the Australian Research Alliance for Children and Youth. The Future Healthy Countdown 2030 aims to focus attention on the health of young people against a backdrop of issues like wealth inequality, inactivity, food insecurity and stress. It is based on the NEST wellbeing framework created by the Australian Research Alliance for Children and Youth, which outlines six domains as a way of thinking about the whole context of a child's daily life and the elements they need to thrive. These are being valued, loved and safe, having material basics, being healthy, learning and employment pathways, participating and having a positive sense of identity and culture. In overseas news, Iran has executed 21-year-old Milad Zovaranj for protesting in the Women, Life, Freedom movement in 2022 in the city of Malaya in Iran. Sovereign was executed without notice on the 24th of November in a prison on the charge of killing a security officer. On the 26th of October, a year ago, coinciding with the 40th day memorial of Masa Amini's death, the city of Malaha had a tense political atmosphere. The protests continued in the city until the evening of that day. Milad was with several other members of his family near a police station when a clash with the security forces took place. One of his relatives says Milad was shocked in the hand and was seriously injured. A member of the security intelligence staff of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps the military force responsible for the crackdown of the protests, was also killed there. A well-informed source said the family of Milad tried to get the consent 
of the family of this killed member of the Revolutionary Guards by paying a very high ransom, but they insisted on the execution sentence to go ahead. Milad Zovarand was born in 2001 and was an asphalt worker. He was married and his child was born while he was in prison. According to reports, he was denied the right to have a lawyer in all stages of his arrest and court trial. Since Masa Amini's death, eight people have been executed in connection with the protests. Currently, at least four more prisoners are under the death sentence. They are all sentenced for killing the government militia members who were sent to crack down on the protesters. A poem by the late poet Ahmad Shamlo in memory of Milad Zovarand will be published on our website. In Finland, overnight, there's been an announcement that it will close its last remaining border with Russia for national security reasons, The Guardian reports. According to this article, Finland believes Russia is encouraging asylum seekers to enter Finland via the crossing as a means of applying migration pressure to the neighbouring country. Eight other crossing points have already been closed along the 830-mile land border. A total of 900 asylum seekers have arrived in Finland from Russia this month, some of them believed to have arrived on bicycles in snow. The border will be closed until December 13th, during which time asylum seekers will be directed to airports and ports. The UN has criticised the move, saying it would be contrary to international law. Estonia and Sweden have supported Finland in the move. And today, the 29th of November, is International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian People. To mark this significant day, Ashtar Theatre is urgently requesting that the Gaza monologues be publicly read and performed. The Gaza monologues are personal stories written by children in Gaza in 2010. During this time, the monologues were performed by over 1,500 young people in 36 countries. These testimonials still remain relevant today. The Ashtar Youth Theatre is encouraging public readings of the monologues in order to promote the day which values justice and freedom. And that's news headlines for this morning. It's going to be a hot summer. Yay for summer! Summer brings swimming, summer brings picnics in the park, and summer brings the 3CR Summer Wine Fundraiser. So find a shady spot, grab your picnic blanket and gather your mates to get your order in. We're selling delicious wine, generously provided by a Victorian wine producer, just in time for your summer gathering. This is a new provider to us and we know you'll love the wine. Wines can be purchased in a single bottle, a gift pack of three, or get a discount and order in a half dozen or one dozen lot. For an extra $10, we can deliver to anyone within a 15k radius of the station. It's easy to support 3CR this summer. Order online at 3cr.org.au slash shop or call the station on 03 9419 8377 during business hours. In the summer I went swimming, in the summer I might have drowned. But I held my breath, I kicked my feet and I moved my arms around. I'm in my arms around
You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and a warning that the following segment discusses war, trauma and sexual violence that may be distressing for some listeners. If this may be triggering for you, you may wish to tune out for the next 15 minutes. Violence against women and girls remains one of the most prevalent and pervasive human rights violations in the world. Globally, An estimated 736 million women, almost one in three, have been subjected to physical and or sexual intimate partner violence, non-partner sexual violence, or both at least once in their life. 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence is a global campaign led annually by United Nations Women. It runs every year from the 25th of November to the 10th of December. During the 16 days of activism, communities around the world join the call to prevent and eliminate violence against women and girls. In acknowledgement of this ongoing work to change the world we live in, we listen to one woman's account of intergenerational trauma stemming from the suffering of Herero and Nama peoples women at the hands of German colonists in what is present-day Namibia. And for those who aren't familiar with the historical context, in 1884, Germany invaded the Namibian territory and founded the German Southwest Africa colony. The colonisers' interest increased after the discovery of diamonds and a policy of systemic land conservation confiscation and the arrival of more and more German settlers forced the farmers off the land. The Nama and Herero were livestock farmers and the country's two main tribes. In January 1904, the Herero rebelled and the German military responded with 10,000 soldiers and a war plan that included an order to kill all Herero. Over the next four years, German imperial Military forces systematically targeted Herero and Nama peoples using physical violence, establishing conditions of malnutrition, sickness, starvation and thirst. Over 65,000 Herero and 10,000 Nama died at the hands of German authorities, an estimated 80 and 50% of their respective populations. The persecution was later qualified as the world's first genocide of the 20th century. Gender-based violence against women and girls was widespread during German colonial rule. We now bring you a special interview with Nama woman Sima Leipot from Namibia, who tells us how the violence inflicted on her peoples in the early 1900s still has impact to this day. This segment was produced by Sheldon Ferris for Indigenous Rights Radio, and we thank them for sharing it with us. Indigenous Rights Radio, because knowledge is power.
Despite being one of the most widespread, persistent, and devastating human rights violations in our world today, violence against women and girls remains largely unreported due to impunity, silence, stigma, and shame. And in some cases, maladministration and negligence by the police and or other authorities in specific countries. According to UN.org, violence against women and girls manifests itself in one of the following forms. Intimate partner violence, sexual violence and harassment, human trafficking, female genital mutilation, and child marriage. In spite of the fact that gender-based violence can happen to anyone, anywhere, there are some specific women and girls who are especially vulnerable. For instance, young girls and older women, migrants, some members of the LGBTQIA community, refugees, indigenous women, ethnic minorities, and others. Indigenous women are also at high risk of violence. In June 2022, UN Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women had this to say about indigenous women. Quote, indigenous women and girls face very grave, systematic, and continuous acts of violence that permeate every aspect of their lives while perpetrators enjoy alarming levels of impunity. End quote. For this year's International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women and Children, we remember the suffering of indigenous Herero and Nama women at the hands of German colonists. We spoke to Sima Leipert from Namibia about how violence from the past can lead to intergenerational trauma. Thank you very much for asking for this interview. My name is Sima Leipert. Um, I'm from the indigenous um, Nama community in in southern Namibia. Um, Yeah, I professionally, I work as a development practitioner. I'm the development director for the Hardap Regional Council. Um, But I was also asked by the Nama leaders who, you know, Nama people stay in most of the region in which I work. So, yeah, I was requested by them to support them and to advise them on issues around reparations and restorative justice for, for the genocide committed against the Nama people. So, yeah, I do that on a voluntary basis. Um, just in a you know advisory capacity, um, as not only as an as number woman, but also because development issues, you know, genocide is at the core of um, persistent poverty in the region that I work, and and that is one of my motivations. That you cannot look at prosperity and building people's livelihoods without understanding the historical background of the community within which you work. So that's basically my, my background. My, my great-grandmother, I never really knew her. Um, I was very young. Um, I think she must have passed away when I was maybe around nine or ten years old. Um, but yeah, we, we used to visit our grandmother quite often and she stayed with my grandmother and uh, 
I found her to be a very secluded woman. Um, she wasn't, it almost felt to me at the time that she didn't like children. But it is only, you know, when I started thinking through the stories that our grandmother used to tell us at that time that I started to understand um, that this was a woman who was very traumatized. My, my great-grandmother survived Shark Island. Um, we, we heard this through, through bedtime stories of my grandmother. Um, she was then taken to an area in Karibib. My grandmother always used to talk about Karibib. And so I thought, you know, they were taken to Karibib itself. But I, once I started reading, I found out that she was actually taken to a slave labor camp um, called Okawayo near, near Karibib. And it is from here that um, my great-grandmother was rented out as a slave um, to the new sort of German settlers while people were in the extermination camps um, around 1905-1906 Germany um, declared certain legal instruments, ordinances that were used to expropriate all the land of the Nama people and the new German settlers were settled on this land and so when Shark Island extermination camp was closed the prisoners were taken to slave labor camps and from here they were rented out by the German administration to the settlers. The settlers paid the wages to the administration um, and not to the slaves. And this is also how my grandmother was born to the German settler um, to whom my great-grandmother was, was rented out. Um, yeah, um, we always used to wonder why my grandmother had straight hair um, and she would often say it's not for children to know but then later she opened up and said i'm the child of a german um, to whom my mother was was rented out um, she never knew her father um, yeah she never knew her father and uh, that's my story, I guess. Any, every act of violence that you can ever imagine, um, you know, happened to them. I mean, um, my, my great-grandmother was subjected to scraping of skulls. Um, when the women were at Shark Island concentration camp, um, it was the women who had to, who were brought the heads um, of as little children, as, as you know, even infant babies um, who were brought these heads and they had to go through this very traumatizing um, experience of taking the flesh of these, of these heads. They had to take out the eyes they had to take out the brains. They had to take, they had to take off the hair, just everything, um, so that these skulls would then be polished and put into boxes and shipped to to Germany and to other institutions for racial sciences. Now, 
I don't know what kind of violence, you know, one can imagine more than having to completely scrape the skull of your own family members. This is what was happening at Shark Island. The women were subjected to sterilization, forced sterilization. They were subjected to rape. They were subjected to flogging. They, I mean, you know, it's it's just unimaginable the horror that, that they went through. Um, I see a lot of self-inflicted violence in our communities, self-inflicted violence through alcohol abuse, through drug abuse, through child neglect, um, extreme, extreme levels of poverty, um, very little sense of integrity, almost hopelessness, um, as if every dream has been shattered. I see that a lot around me. Um, I see a lot of, I see a lot of also sort of a sense of wanting to protect yourself um, from any external danger. I also sense that quite a bit um, through, and, and this protection, self-protection is through extreme forms of aggression. Um, yeah, that is, that is what I see, almost as if people are caught in a vicious, in a very vicious cycle of self-destruction, not knowing really how to come out of it. Um, and I think at the bottom of this is because we don't understand where this comes from. We don't understand we are ignorant of our own history and what this history has done to us. You must remember that um, when people were put into concentration camps, all the land was taken. And when they were finally released, um, especially after 1915, when the, when the British came in, um, these people were put into native reserves. And the purpose of these native reserves were to keep them as a cheap labor pool where they could not come out of poverty, but just survive. And since then, it seems to me that many Nama communities have become so used to just trying to survive. Um, because and it, it is almost as if they have ex accepted that this is their fate without even understanding how they ended up in, in, in these native reserves. And these native reserves have become breeding grounds of self-destruction, unfortunately. And by doing the work, by doing the work that we are that we are doing through advocacy, um, we try to make people aware of of who they are and just, you know, sort of renew the sense of, you know, identity and and integrity. That is, yeah, that is what we do. That that is what 
at least we try to do. But it's very difficult to to undo so much trauma. You know, it's going to take a, 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 a lot of effort and a lot of focused effort. On the rights of indigenous peoples, visit cs.org and follow Cultural Survival on Facebook and Twitter. That was Nama woman Sima Leipert from Namibia sharing the ongoing trauma of her peoples resulting from colonial violence in the early 20th century. And listening to that reminded me of the ongoing struggles of Indigenous women experienced around the world, uh, including here in so-called Australia. That story was produced by Sheldon Ferris and broadcast with the permission of Indigenous Rights Radio a collective of Indigenous voices of the world. They focus on the meaning of Indigenous people's rights, common struggles and the innovative solutions they develop to deal with problems they face nowadays. And you can listen to more stories by the Indigenous Rights Radio Group by visiting their website, www.rights.culturalsurvival.com. Org. And if you're interested in finding out more about 16 Days of Activism and events near you, you can visit the Respect Victoria website. If anything in this segment has been upsetting for you, or if you or anyone near you is experiencing sexual violence, support is available Safe Steps supports people in Victoria experiencing or at risk of experiencing family violence. 1800 015 188 Respect 1800 737 732 The Sexual Assault Crisis Line 1800 806 292 And of course, in an emergency, call Victorian Police on triple zero. We're now going to go to a song. This is one of my favourites. This is Shelley Morris with Wali Wali Yangu, Saltwater People. I hope you enjoy it. Wally, Wally, I 
Wale wale ango, lele anta wiriara, lianyua. Wale wale ango, lele anta wiriara, lianyua. That was Shelley Morris with Wali Wali Yangu, Saltwater People. It's nine weeks to the day since Daniel Andrews stepped down as Premier of Victoria, a week before he had announced the Victorian Housing Statement, a raft of reforms designed to massively increase the state's housing supply to the tune of 800,000 new homes in a decade. A linchpin in the reform package is a fast-track planning system speeding up permissions for selected new home builds, removing permissions for others and giving the Minister for Planning decision-making power for significant residential developments, including affordable housing. But some planning experts are concerned about the impact of the changes, saying they remove decision-making power from local councils and communities reduce public accountability and transparency and ultimately will not fix the housing problem. Michael Buxton is Emeritus Professor of Environment and Planning at the School of Global, Urban and Social Studies at RMIT University. He has extensive experience working in senior management with Victorian Government Planning and Environment Agencies, the Victorian Environment Protection Authority, and has served as an elected local government councillor, mayor, and a member of the Upper Yarra Valley and Dandenong Rangers Authority. He joins us now to talk about the state government's fast-track planning policy, 
and its impact on communities and community spaces. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Fine. Nice to be here. Now, Daniel Andrews said that planning reform was necessary to increase affordable housing and make sure planning applications that had been lying around for way too long get dealt with. He cited 1,400 housing permit applications that have been, his words, stuck with councils for more than six months. Do you agree with the former Premier's justification for introducing the fast-track system? No, I don't. Um, the government and the property sector uh, for many months sent out this false narrative that um, councils and, and local residents were responsible for uh, lack of housing, housing supply, whereas in fact uh, councils since 2005 have been approving more dwellings that have been built, uh, quite substantially more dwellings. Uh, there's been no lack of approvals uh, and this all worked quite satisfactorily uh, until about a year ago when the housing industry itself ran into problems um, of, of construction through supply chain problems and uh, housing um, building materials and, and, and labour shortages and so on. So uh, it was a false narrative. It was all designed to create this sense of of crisis which uh, which didn't exist um, and has only uh, come into uh, into the fore recently with uh, through the housing industry itself. Okay, and along with that was a tagline um, that said, good decisions made faster. I wonder if we could go through some of the key planning proposals uh, that Andrew's brought in in that suite of changes and hear um, your view on whether you think that these quick decisions will necessarily be good decisions. Um, the first one is that they've brought in um, this sort of concept of residential standards that will be uh, deemed to comply uh, if the, 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 the property plan um, has met these standards. Can you unpack what that means for our listeners and what is the significance of these standards being recategorised like this? Yes, for over, over a decade, over a decade um, other states as well have been working um, towards the same hymn sheet really of, of trying to remove the need for a planning permit for, for many major developments, including multi-unit uh, residential developments. New South Wales have done this and, um, and other states, Queensland. And the other uh, approach has been to get councils and residents out of the action um, to remove their rights and to centralise decision-making. So one way to do this um, is to either... Um, bring a lot, a lot of the approvals to um, uh, under the, the power of the minister, so basically get councils away from the, the, the process. But another way to do it is to, to through this notion of deem to comply. So uh, that just simply means that if there are a set of uh, specified development standards that are met um, and they're spelled out, uh, in this case they're room sizes, storage, uh, and a more simplified version of the current apartment standard. So, if a, if a, if an application um, for multi-unit development meets those standards, then um, 
then they, they can be approved. Um, and it, uh, there's two ways that this can happen. Um, they can they can be approved for applications for two or more dwellings on land within 800 metres of a passenger rail station or within a major or, or neighbourhood activity centre within metropolitan Melbourne. This, this means that within 800 metres of all the little shopping centres and major shopping centres and, and the railway stations, uh, this deemed to comply uh, situation will apply that simply um, an applicant will... Um, will apply. Uh, the application will be exempt from notice and appeal, uh, and uh, it will um, it will simply be approved um, if it meets those standards. And the in this case, the chief executive officer of the council will approve of the council shut out of the entire process. Um, and uh, all that has to happen is that the dwellings in the apartments in those areas meet a licence template design. So there's a, a number of um, standardised designs that the government is, is working up and if an application meets that, uh, it will be approved. And the other way to, to get development without um, uh, having residents or councils really involved is, um, is through what used to be the... Um, the res, res code um, under clauses 54 and 55 of the planning scheme. Uh, so this is development up to four storeys, not beyond the four storeys. So under the old res code, and 14 residential development standards have now been codified. So this is um, another way to describe this is code assessed. So if if, uh, if an application meets the code standards, it's it's, it is deemed to comply. That is, it's said that it, it meets the standards and, it, and work can begin uh, on, on, on the application. Um, uh, uh, no appeal or notice rights will apply where the standards are deemed to be met. So this is a, a, a really major change. It gets residents and fundamentally it gets councils out of the approvals process and um, it will uh, apply over an incredibly wide area in the in the general residential zone in particular on the future homes program within 800 meters of a of a of a, an activity center and when you when you plot all that across melbourne it's a huge amount of land that residents are going to have no say uh, on the development applications for apartments yeah it's really um absolutely a huge um change and um I've been through this process a couple of times with my mother who's lived in various places where next door there's been a you know a big old house that's got knocked down and the developers built you know a, a low-rise uh, multi apartment building um, and you know she's been given the notice they've had the consultations everyone's had an opportunity to have a say nothing much was actually changed, but at least that process was in place. What you're saying is if the property is within 800 metres of, you know, a major public um, activity centre or railway station, that whole process would not take place. No, there'd be no notice appeal requirements. Uh, and if it met the... If it met the um the standards, then uh, presumably it would be approved. Um, but it'll be approved by the chief executive officer of the council. I mean, this is 
Uh, I mean, it's, an, it's a very radical change to the current process. I mean, there's a, there's a lot wrong with the current process, mm. but this isn't the way to fix it. Um, I mean, uh, Andrews's claim that um, you know he wants to fast track uh, through a, a simplified process, he wants to fast track applications um, uh, and get uh, uh, you know a, a better result. Uh, look in in. In all the experience I have, and that the evidence shows that you get worse outcomes through that approach. That the best way to to um, to gain uh, high performing and useful uh, redevelopment applications, including for a whole range of other outcomes such as affordable housing, is through is by involving residents and and local councils and local processes. You get a better outcome than if you just have developers make decisions on a simplified planning process and impose that onto the community. So it's entirely the wrong way to go, and, and it's a real worry for a democratic society. I mean, we're, we presumably still do live in a democracy, uh, yet the government is chipping away at resident and, and citizen rights through these kind of... Um, processes um, fundamentally changing the, the governance, the approach to governance that um, we take for granted. And it's a, it's a way to significantly change uh, citizen rights. So, you know, there's a lot of concentration on other elements of citizen rights, but very, very rarely do do the, you know, the, the high-powered solicitors and lawyers and others involved in human rights even consider... Um, um, matters like planning systems, which are really fundamental to the way people live and the way cities develop. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like uh, down the track there might be possible legal arguments that could be run um, and, uh, you know, that these might not actually be lawful. It would seem that, you know, at common law... Um, and administrative law, there are certain principles that do protect uh, occupiers' neighbours' well, rights, and uh, yeah, it would just be interesting to to see um, how this plays out going forward in in that respect. But more importantly, in the in the short term, is the practical implications not those not just for those who are living as neighbours and in the communities um, who might be affected by the physicality of the building and its presence in the street, but also those living in the building itself. A lot of these might be sold off the plan. Um, yeah, it's it's also, it takes away, I suppose, the, the buyer or the tenant's um, security and trust in the system that the checks and balances that would normally take place have, have indeed taken place. Yes, well, I think that's a really good point because the other side of, of these amendments um, that, that Daniel Andrews imposed upon the community, and by the way, um, another worrying element of this whole program is, uh, is is the way it was developed. It was developed in secret uh, between the government and the property industry. It took a couple of years of, of negotiations and uh, back and forward uh, discussions, and then it, it was suddenly um, imposed upon the community without consultation. 
the tradition in Victoria has been for major amendments like this to go out to public consultation where you know a, re- a review panel of some kind is 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 um independently set up and reports back to government and people have an opportunity to make comment now that wasn't done this was an overnight change and it's it's another uh, really worrying element of of the way this government thinks uh, and and treats residents but the other side that might be subject to planning uh, to um to legal argument is um is this development facilitation program, um, which is another amendment they introduced as well as the ones we've been just talking, the one we've just been talking about, and this is a separate way for the development industry to proceed for major developments, like really major developments, um, and uh, they can apply a way quite apart from the rules of the current planning system, uh, which are quite facilitative anyway, but they can um, seek to bypass that and apply direct to the Minister for Planning who becomes the, the decision maker, the responsible authority for approval of applications under a new clause. Uh, and it's designed to fast-track approvals through a separate approvals process. And there's two ways to do this. They brought in uh, 21 uses which applicants can seek approval for Across any zone, so even if um, even if the 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 use that the, the applicant wants um, is is uh, prohibited or requires a permit in the zone, uh, this method can bypass that. Uh, and uh, so what it does is it groups uh, a range of land uses which are normally kept separate in zones. The purpose of zones is to is to clearly identify where land uses can can be placed and this merges them so we're getting commercial uh, residential retail uh, uses mixed up um, so you could have you could have a really major commercial apl- um, application uh, approved uh, in, a, in a residential zone under this in in theory and uh, it, it can have enormous traffic problems and so on so it really goes to the heart of contradicting one of you know the fundamental principles of a planning process mm-hmm. and it does this also for affordable housing so it's designed um, where uh, an applicant an applicant meets um, can seek uh, approval for any accommodation use or development um, and for both these approaches all, all the applicant has to do is to meet minimum investment standards mm, commercial million yeah. or 50 Fifty million dollars or whatever, uh, and an interesting under the affordable housing one, at least ten percent of the number of dwellings in the development must be affordable housing. Now that's about half; it's under half what California mandates, right? And he, and the minister can even waive this. So the justification for this, you know, we've got to bring affordable housing in, uh, is is just shot to pieces because. It's a minimum. It's a minimal number uh, in in the first place, and it can be waived. Uh, so really, it's it's not designed for affordable housing. It's not designed for social housing. It's designed to fast track major development applications and to merge previously uh, previ- uh, land uses which were previously seen as incompatible. 
So yes. in summary, all these approaches are fundamentally uh, changing the planning system, taking away resident rights, and I think they're probably the most radical changes we've ever seen in the Victorian planning system, but they've received very little attention in the media. Well, we're talking about it now. Unfortunately, though, we are out of time, um, and this is um, such an important topic. Um, I'm going to ask you perhaps um, to send me some places that listeners can tap into to get more information to follow uh, the work that you're doing and, you know, how they can raise um, their concerns uh, about this. Um, and then we can put that on our website. But uh, unfortunately, we'll, we'll have to wrap up the conversation there. But thank you very much. Um, that was Mr... Michael Buxton, Emeritus Professor of Environment and Planning at the School of Global Urban and Social Studies at RMIT University, speaking about Victoria's fast-track planning policy introduced in September. Uncover the depths of human connection and power in the new opera by Evan Lawson and Nicole Butcher, The Sea. This visceral exploration of love, Lust and the corrupting influence of power in relationships washes over you in this extraordinary collaboration between Forest Collective and BK Opera. The Sea plays from the 7th until the 10th of December at Abbotsford Convent. Tickets available from forestcollective.com.au. Forest Collective is a 3CR supporter. Stop, 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 stop,
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast on 855am. Just a content warning to our listeners, there will be discussions around sexual violence and abuse in the next 20 minutes. If you find this distressing, you can tune out. Violence against women affects over an estimated 736 million women all around, all over the world, which means that almost one in three women have been subjected to physical and or sexual intimate partner violence, non-partner sexual violence or both at least once in their life. This Saturday, the 25th of November, is the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. In 2017, at the request of Australia's 39 universities, the Australian Human Rights Commission has conducted a national independent survey of university students to gain greater insight into the nature, prevalence and reporting of sexual assault and sexual harassment at Australian universities. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jess Eisen to find out if things have changed since the national reports came out and what can be done by universities to further prevent sexual violence and assault on campus. Jess is a postdoctoral research fellow at La Trobe University at the Judith Lumley Centre. Welcome to the show, Jess. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so, first of all, how does sexual violence happen in campuses? What are the most common forms of it and when and where is it most likely to happen? Yeah, look, so you mentioned the Change the Course report and there's actually been one since then released in um, 2021. Or was it 22? Oh, time's so confusing post-COVID. Mm, yes. Um, uh, that was the, the follow-up survey um, from the Change of the Course. So it was a little bit different, some of the questions, but had some really similar findings um, where we see um, particularly high rates of sexual violence um, experienced by women and um, some better data this time on trans and non-binary students. Um, and we see um, particularly troubling um, results for sexual harassment um, for trans and non-binary students. Um, and um, yeah, particularly troubling um, results on sexual harassment for um, women and trans and non-binary students. And um, it happens kind of all across the university, but one of the places um, in particular students talked about was just kind of general campus area, lecture theatres, university libraries. But then we also see that's particularly for sexual harassment, um, whereas for sexual assault, we see um, that happening more around clubs and society events. Um, we see very troubling um, results for um, on-campus accommodation and residences, um, and then, of course, private homes or residences um, where they may um, the perpetrator may have been another student or they've been out at a student event. Um, so really what that tells us is it's kind of happening everywhere at the university and it's happening in all contexts and that there's um, a really significant problem. And we know that um, the, often that the um, victim survivors knew one or all of the perpetrators involved. Mm. And, you know, exactly how 
common is sexual violence and harassment at Australian university, uh, at universities? Um, and has there been any improvement in the um, in the years since the um, sur- le- you know since the survey has been done? Look, it's hard to draw exact comparisons because um, the surveys were a little bit different and the questions were a little bit different. Mm. Um, but in general, we're still seeing extremely troubling numbers. Um, so, for example, for sexual harassment, since starting university, one in six reported experiencing sexual harassment um, and one in 12 in the past 12 months. And for sexual assault, we see that there was one in 20 since starting university um, and um, one in 90 in the past 12 months. And it, um, you know, it's important to know that this survey was kind of done in the in the context of lockdowns um, and less students on campus, so that's um, going to most likely be an underestimate. Um, and so from that data, from the responses, we can extrapolate that there are pretty significant numbers. This kind of, we know that across the board, um, sexual violence happens at a, a significant and troubling rate and um, that you know, the majority of people who experience um, sexual violence are female and trans and non-binary people and that the majority of perpetrators are known males. Um, so it's, it's um, we see it, we do see though in university context a, a bit of a higher rate. And, you know, that's for a range of reasons. Um, you know, it's because we have students living on campus um, and we know that that's a really high area for sexual violence and harassment. We have... Um, Students, you know, it's their first time leaving home, um, living on campus. Uh, there's lots of alcohol involved, and that um, young men are um, have um, terrible ideas of what consent is, um, and uh, young women are um, let, are are encouraged to drink drink heavily, uh, in or and uh, in order to perpetrate sexual violence. So, it's not always just some. Um, lone predator it's often as i said someone that the person knows uh, it's happening in that context of where you live um and it's happening often um in the context of alcohol and that's not in any way to blame the victim or to justify the perpetrator's behavior but just to consider how that's one of the factors um that contributes Hmm. and um, many victims say that they don't know where to go or how to make um, a report. You know, many victims don't even report um, their assault or harassment. But how can people seek help when they experience sexual violence or harassment on campus? Like, you know, how can they report it and what avenues are available to support mm. them? I mean, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it's the thing is that often um, instances, particularly of sexual harassment, but also sexual assault, um, people don't realise that that's what's happened because our society so heavily condones sexual harassment, so heavily condones pressuring someone into sex, having sex with you, um, and so um, often people won't won't realise it's sexual assault or harassment until. Um, later down the line when uh, they learn about um, what sexual assault and harassment is um, and and realise what's happened to them. And so that's really one of the key barriers um, is that misinformation, um, that victim blaming as well. So victims think that it's their fault 
um, that they did something to deserve it. Um, and so then they think that they um, aren't allowed to complain or um, that they're being troublesome. Um, and so there's a lot of reasons why um, they might not um, report. Another really big reason is because people don't trust the systems, they don't trust the university, they don't trust the police if that's where they're thinking about going, particularly if they're marginalised. For example, Indigenous uh, people are very um, unlikely to want to go to the police, um, obviously due to historic and ongoing police violence. Um, and so there's a lot of barriers for people to even um, think about reporting anyway. One of the other things is that um, lots of students talk about being unhappy with the reporting process. If they do go through that process, we see significant concerns about that. And so, as a result, students hear about how bad the reporting is uh, at universities and therefore they don't report. Um, and so then the university has very low numbers of reporting compared to what we see in these surveys. Um, universities have tried to um, address this, some have, um, and have um, tried to make it easier for students to report through online portals through um, um, hotlines that they can call. Um, lots of universities have set up in response to the original report, <clears throat> um, the change of course report. Universities set up what's often called a safer communities program um, mm. and students could go there to report. Um, lots of students um, have felt that they those haven't been an adequate response and haven't had a great um, response from them. And so because of this, um, we see that particularly um, and Rape on Campus, who are an amazing activist group here in Australia, um, have been calling for an independent oversight um, because they're, they're, the reports that they're having from students is they're not happy with what the universities are doing and that, they're, um, that universities need to have some basic standards because at the moment each university is just doing its own thing. Mm, okay. Um, you will get back to what other things need to be done, but um, I'd first like to know, you know, what other policies and practices have been reformed um, in in university campuses um, since the surveys have, uh, since the change to the course survey? Because I do know that, um, you know, the first survey did, um, like, cause a uh, result in some uh, change be ha happening? Yeah, look, we saw um, lots of change at universities. Um, we saw um, lots of programs quickly implemented. Um, some of those have now um, been taken away again because they were um, not sufficient. Um, and we see um, lots of different, often kind of one-off programs, bystander programs, consent programs. Um, and look, there's important work to be done around training, but when we're looking at sexual violence and harassment in any institution, it's not something that can be trained away. It's something that's embedded across across the system and needs to be addressed um, holistically um, from all angles. Um, and that's obviously a huge, huge task um, and one that isn't easily kind of easily done like implementing some training. And so um, we see universities, some universities are trying to take a whole of university approach, but that is very long work. That's many years of work um, to address mm -hmm. that. Um, there's no kind of quick fix to this. There's no easy answer. 
Um, and so it's something we need to keep pressuring universities and, and I mean, other, other institutions too, um, is to do more than just one-off trainings or short courses, um, that we need to keep pressuring them to be doing um, a whole of university or a whole of institution approach to this issue um, that, that, think, that considers all angles um, and, and really has a focus on preventing perpetration. Mm. And just before we go, what um, I know you've had taken part in forming the Enhance, Assess, Acknowledge Act program. Mm. Can you just expand on what that is and how that works? Yeah, it's a program from Canada. We're just testing to see if it works here in Australia. Um, it's a program that is for university women um, and um, gives them really good knowledge on what sexual assault is and really challenges lots of rape myths, um, has some self-defence components um, and also some um, good sex education. Um, and it's really about empowering women um, to make the um, choices that they want to make um, and supporting them in the choices that they do make. Um, and it's one of the programs that has the strongest evidence base. Um, so it's been piloted in um, Canada in particular, um, where it was first designed and um, has um, some a really strong reduction in sexual violence for those who've um, taken the program and also really strong reduction in rape myths um, and self-blame. Um, so it's a promising program. We're seeing if it works here in Australia um, and hoping that that will be, if it does work, one of many programs um, and many of the responses that universities do to address this issue. And is this taking place in all universities in Australia or just some? No, just just was at La Trobe, Monash and ANU at the moment um, and then we'll see what the results of the pilot are and, um, yeah, would be good to have some programs that are across the universities in Australia, this one or others that we know work. Um, that would be ideal that universities would invest in such programs amongst other things, um, but wait, we'll wait to see what happens there. Well, and just before we leave, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know? I think the main thing is that any of these responses that have happened are because of the advocacy and activism of students and of organisations like End Rape on Campus um, who've applied. It's so much pressure to universities to change what's happening because they're not happy um, as understandably because of the situation at universities and so just encouraging people that that it is working that pressure and that um, students um, speaking out about this and putting pressure on the universities is, is really the reason it'll change um, and so yeah just encouraging listeners um, particularly those who are students to, to keep um, yeah just keep fighting um, and we'll keep trying to change um, what's happening at universities. Well, thank you for your time today for um, providing important insight into such a widespread issue. And that was Dr. Jess Eisen, postdoctoral research fellow at La Trobe University at the Judith Lumley Centre. More information about her work will be in our show notes. And if you found this distress, uh, this segment distressing, um, there will be more helplines you can call in our show notes as well. Thank you, Sanera. That was um, 
such an important discussion. Uh, we'll just also remind listeners that uh, they can contact uh, a number of uh, sources for support if they found anything in that segment triggering or want to um, help anyone that uh, might be experiencing sexual violence, family violence. Safe Steps, 1800 015 188. 1800 Respect, it's 1800 737 292, sorry, 732, and Sexual Assault Crisis Line, 1800 806 292. And of course, in an emergency, uh, please call triple zero. We're going to head now to our final segment for the, for the program. And we'll be speaking with Kieran, who is a high school student in Victorian high schools. And he's going to be talking to us about the Victorian public uh, schools and teachers who are wishing to participate and hold a Teachers Week of Action for Palestinian uh, Solidarity but have been issued with a directive by the Education Department to uh, stop action. So today, of course, is International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people. So um, at, this, at this time, uh, it's a, a particular day to show solidarity. And uh, we welcome Kieran now. Good morning, Kieran. Uh, good morning. Um interested to hear that I, I haven't finished high school yet. I'm actually a teacher uh, in schools in Victoria rather than a student. Um, sorry, did I introduce you as a student? <laughs> yes, you did. It's fine. My bad, as they say. <laughs> so can you tell us about the Teachers for Palestine group? Uh, yes, uh, Teachers and School Staff uh, for Palestine is a group of teachers, uh, education support staff, administrative staff, uh, in Victorian public schools and also in independent schools um, who've gathered as part of Unionists for Palestine uh, in order to organise uh, solidarity within our unions for Palestine. So what are the plans that you had for the week of action? Uh, yeah, so this week we announced um, a Teachers and School Staff Week of Action for Palestine. Uh, our plans included uh, inviting our colleagues to a vigil uh, on Thursday at 6pm at the State Library Forecourt, um, putting up posters on union notice boards in staff rooms about the issue, talking to colleagues about the issue, uh, taking solidarity photos in staff rooms or off-school grounds with our colleagues, uh, holding sub-branch meetings and passing motions in solidarity with Palestine, uh, and we'd also suggested perhaps bringing Palestinian speakers to address uh, union meetings at school and so on. Uh, and so this was to create a way that teachers could uh, get together with their colleagues, organise with their colleagues uh, in order to show solidarity with Palestine, but also in order to push this as an issue that uh, we as union members should care about. And the context is quite distressing for teachers. In uh, the latest figures that we had, uh, more than 130 teachers have now been killed in Gaza. Um, that's reported by the uh, Palestinian uh, General 
trade union of teachers. Uh, but that's, those figures are more than two weeks old. Uh, more than 200 schools have been shelled. Uh, thousands of school students have been killed in Gaza. 625,000 students have been denied their right to education. Um, so as teachers, these are issues that we care deeply and passionately about. Our fellow trade union members, our fellow teachers and their students are being killed. Um, and we wanted a week where teachers could come together, talk about these issues and show solidarity. And what's happened since the announcement of those plans? Well, uh, people may have seen in the press that Victoria's education minister has come out swinging, saying uh, that we couldn't possibly do this. Um, the same education minister has an interesting history when it comes to Israel. He was in Israel uh, in March this year, um, signing contracts with Israeli defence companies as part of his role as the Minister for Science and Technology, as well as the Minister for Education. Um, and he's wheeled out all the usual tropes. Um, apparently, as teachers, we're not allowed to have opinions or feelings. Uh, we're not allowed to uh, if you, if you took his messaging seriously, apparently we can't organise uh, industrially uh, or have political conversations in the staff room. Um, and messaging has also been put out by the Department of Education, uh, again, basically trying to threaten teachers into silence um, if, yeah, around the issue of Israel-Palestine. And I don't have a copy of the government directive. How much of it is uh, targeted to actions that you may or may not have been intending to have uh, in the classroom versus actions of solidarity that might have been shown in teacher spaces like staff rooms or other places that teachers gather? Uh, the communication from uh, the department makes no distinction between the two. Um, obviously, as teachers, uh, part of our professional code of conduct uh, is the way that we conduct ourselves in the classroom. Uh, and nothing in this week of action would have changed the way that we conduct ourselves in the classroom. Um, but the, the sorts of things that the minister and the department have come out with are sort of conflating the two issues. It, it, it laughably says... Uh, teachers have a right to freedom of expression, but... Uh, and then comes out with a whole bunch of stuff around, essentially, that if teachers were to have opinions about issues and express them, uh, that this would somehow um, be, be negative on the teaching profession. Um, it's, it, it's, it's, it's an untenable situation. Uh, are we or are we not citizens in a democracy as teachers? Do we or do we not get to talk to our colleagues about issues? Do we or do we not get to have political opinions? Do we or do we not get to show solidarity with fellow teachers elsewhere in the world? Um, the line being pushed by uh, the Minister of Education in Victoria uh, is essentially the answer to those questions is no. And the, the tone of it and the major concern seems to be that uh, certainly the way uh, some of uh, 3AW uh, radio's commentators have put it is that the risk was that the political views of students would be influenced. Uh, we know that students have um, active minds and many students are politically active. Uh, we've seen the number of students who have uh, supported uh, causes, whether it be for for climate justice um, or the 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 rally and um, 
Solidarity Movement on Friday. Um, what's your view on that aspect of it? I wish I could successfully brainwash the average high school student, but I've got to confess uh, they're a heck of a lot more politically advanced, uh, curious, inquisitive and expressive than most of us are as teachers. Um, so there's, there's, this, there's this bizarre idea out there in the right-wing press that somehow uh, all these teachers, all these students coming up through high school would be good, loyal, nice or right-wing voters if only those evil teachers didn't brainwash them. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that our students have eyes, our students have ears, our students have mouths and they're able to listen, see what's going on and discuss it and they're taking action uh, as it is. Um, the idea being pushed by the right-wing press, by the likes of 3AW, and by, I, I think the education minister's comments on this as well, um, is essentially that schools are not places where issues should be discussed, where, where students should have conversations about uh, difficult subjects, where teachers have a role in facilitating students' ability to have these conversations. I think that's ridiculous. I'm meant to be a history teacher. Am I meant to basically keep my mouth shut and tell kids, no, don't don't discuss, don't talk about, don't have an opinion about the thing that all of you can see is happening and is, you know, this overwhelming, you know, this, this overwhelming thing happening in our society. No, don't look at that. Don't look at climate change. Don't look at Israel-Palestine. Don't look at the situation of the world you're in. Keep your mouth shut. Keep your mind closed. Uh, here's another test. That's the kind of attitude that we're getting uh, from the education minister, from the right-wing press. And that's the kind of thing that has, has flowed down uh, in a rather absurd directive um, from the Department of Education. And have the Department of Education or any of the specific um, subject areas within the, the department given teachers specific resources to deal with the issues that are happening in Gaza and Israel? No. No. You would think that that would be uh, an important part of any conversation about how to express opinions or, you know, conduct mm. classroom or school activities around these current issues. Yeah, in um, in the in the state of Victoria, there's there's often this public misconception that any great amount of resources are actually produced by the Department of Education for teachers to implement uh, the curriculum as it stands in Victoria. Um, is several hundred motherhood statements or outcome statements as to what's meant to be achieved, uh, and then teachers are clean. Uh, well, if you believe. Uh, on any other day and on any other issue but Israel-Palestine, teachers are told that we are uh, professionals who can take this. Um, we can research and create the materials necessary so uh, and targeted at the students that we have in front of us and their interests and capabilities and, um, and, and attributes and deliver the curriculum to them. So it's not like there's uh, any great mountain of, of resources that come out of the state government for us to go off and teach. Yeah. Um, when I, when I, and, and there's this absurd conflation of the fact that we want to organise as trade union members to have an opinion about something and express it, um, and the idea that somehow we're evil left-wing infiltrators brainwashing the kids. Um, it's, it's just not how schools work, and, uh, and, and these right-wing tropes have got to be pushed back against. Uh, when it comes to what's actually damaging and harming schools, uh, the thing that the Minister of Education doesn't comment about is, is, is funding and resourcing 
the fact that uh, Victorian school students in public schools receive uh, uh, about $8,000 less than the minimum funding standard the men to receive uh, each and every year. Uh, you know, that's, that's the actual issue affecting education. Thank you very much, Kieran. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, you do have a, a vigil that's planned for Thursday evening. Uh, can you give um, listeners details of that? Yes. Um, members of our, as members of our union, as teachers and school staff, we will be gathering at 6pm uh, on Thursday at the State Library forecourt um, to show our solidarity with teachers and staff uh, and school students in Gaza. And we invite people to come and join us. Thank you very much, Kieran. Thank you. And that was Kieran, a high school teacher working in the Victorian public school system, talking to us about Teachers Week of Action. And you can find out more about the Week of Action and the vigil by going to their Facebook page. We'll put the details of that on our uh, show notes. And I just wanted to add very quickly, because we're nearly out of time, that on that Facebook um, page, uh, a humanities teacher had posted a Gaza lesson plan um, that had she has been using in the classroom and she was putting it out there for other teachers who might be interested. And I had a look at it to, to sort of see and get a feel for what, and how teachers might be approaching this. And it was incredibly balanced. Um, the opening discussion points are completely open. What have you read, seen or heard about what is going on in Israel and Gaza? What are your emotions and feelings? What kind of conversations are you having with friends and family? Where are you getting your information? How do you know that it's reliable? And what questions do you have about what's happening now in its larger context? So... Yeah, if that's uh, what's going on in, in classrooms, um, I think uh, that would be a good good thing for uh, our children, but that's just my opinion. Um, and to note that the Minister for Education, Ben Carroll, was invited to participate in this interview but declined. Uh, so along with the vigil tomorrow night, there's also an event at the Melbourne Grand Mosque in Tarnit taking place tonight for International Day of Solidarity with Palestinian People. Uh, that's 7pm to 10pm tonight, Wednesday the 29th at the Tarnit Melbourne Grand Mosque. Knocking the Top Off, a people's history of alcohol in Australia is a heavily illustrated 67 chapter book co-edited by Alex Etling and Ian McIntyre, delivering an incisive alternative history of Australia from the bottom up that includes stories ranging from the convict era resistance through to actions by workers, people with disability and anti-fascists today. Alcohol and pubs many and varied roles in social change, music, art and more are explored by more than 20 writers. These include Jeff Sparrow, Wendy Bacon, Gary Foley, Diane Kirkby, David Nichols, Tanya Luckins and Graham Willett. Copies can be purchased directly from 3CR at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours. To find out more details or buy the book online, visit interventions.org.au. A 3CR supporter.
And we're coming to the end of our show. So thank you to all our guests this morning. And uh, just to let listeners know that uh, next week we'll have a, a new team member joining, Pippa, who you'll get to know. And uh, Sonera will be here. Yes. I'll um, be taking a bit of a break. Um, I'm heading off uh, to Istanbul to visit my daughter for a couple of weeks. And uh, then we'll be back on the airwaves for the summer programming and uh, and then having a little bit of a break after that. But uh, we'll be leaving you in, in good hands here. Well, um, yeah, it is Claudia's last time in the studio off for uh, a while. So uh, we're going to miss her a lot, but she will be here um you will hear her during the summer um you'll also hear some new voices um during the summer and uh, maybe in the summer and next year but for now um see you next time i'll be joining you again 3cr breakfast would like to thank the new international bookshop melbourne's independent radical bookstore